Well, if you remember from last week, Isaiah 40 was, uh, was quite a chapter. It was probably one of the most glorious chapters to behold. As a preacher, I felt, I felt just big and ugly and wanted to get out of the way and let the text just be read and explained to you. So powerful was the truths that we learned about God. Um, as we've been walking through Isaiah, you've been finding in the first 39 chapters, if I can remind you, the people have over and over again turned to idols and nations and other things instead of turning to God. And God is just there waiting to be trusted, and so they turn to all these other things instead of turning to God. And so, of course, God finally brings about that exile, that, that command that they're going to go to those whom they trusted, which were the Babylonians. And that's what, in fact, happened. Now, the mercy of God was then revealed in, in chapter 40, where God said that I will deliver you. And he said, I myself will deliver you. I mean, he will deliver, he'll redeem, he'll restore. So God takes these sinners who are just bent on self-destruction, and he comes and moves towards us with grace. Well, in chapter 42, we get a little more detail now on how he will deliver us, or I should better say, through whom he will deliver us. We're introduced to these servant songs. This is the first of four. And in these servant songs, um, Isaiah is clarifying the type of redeemer, the type of Messiah, the servant who will come and deliver us from this sin. It's, it's a beautiful passage. I, I want you, when we read, we're going to read the first nine verses, and, and three facets of his, of his work I want to declare to you. First is his extraordinary nature, unique nature of the servant. And we'll get into that in the first verse. And then his global task, or his, his really cosmic mission is what he has. And then ultimately the counterintuitive, or the the non-conventional way of his ministry. And we'll see that at the end. So let's read together uh, Isaiah 42, and we'll read 1 to 9. He says in verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands. Wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and, and spirit to those who walk in it. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison of those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory. I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Okay, the first thing we see in this servant, remember, if you, <clears throat> if you will, when you go through Isaiah, it's going to be like one of those telescopes that keep going out. You get better and better focus in God's plan as you work through the book. And, and the first thing he does, he says, behold my servant. So God, in chapter 41, there's a court case, and God is arguing against the people and their idolatry. And, and he's saying, behold your worthless idols. 
And now he says, behold my servant. He says, behold him. In other words, in contrast to the idols that you've been serving, look at my servant. Now there's something more going on here. Sorry about my voice. I actually feel worse than the voice, but uh, behold my servant. There's something else going on here, and that is this. That if you think about how Isaiah has been describing this Redeemer, this Messiah, he's used some great terms. Emmanuel, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Almighty Everlasting Father, Wonderful Counselor in chapter 9. In chapter 11, he talks about being a shoot from the stump of Jesse. In other words, this child of promise that we've been studying has all these royal titles, all this dignity, all this beauty. He's from the greatest King David. I mean, there's excitement. But now God introduces him as a servant, as a servant. Are we sure this is the Messiah? Are we sure this is the one to come? Because, you know, Isaiah's been called a servant. Eliakim in chapter 20 has been called a servant. And Israel is a servant as well. How do we know that this is, in fact, the servant, the Messiah, or I'll be arguing, Jesus? Well, in fact, I don't think it's Isaiah. Some believe it is. Some believe that it's, it's um, Israel. But if you notice, Israel in chapter 40 is called dismayed. and In chapter 41, they're fearful. In chapter 42, the chapter we're studying, he says, Israel, my servant, blind and deaf. And yet this servant isn't given those titles. Look at what God says. He says, behold, my servant. Here's how he introduces him. Whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Look at this. God has chosen this servant, and he has put his delight upon him. He sees his excellencies, is what the word means. But he also has put his spirit on him for the task. This is a unique servant. This is a glorious servant. And the preeminence of the servant is just jumping off the pages at us. Now again, Isaiah doesn't identify him, but we know from our previous passages, particularly in 11, where this Messiah was also given the Spirit and was also given the delight of God. So, so this is the Messiah that's coming, the servant who's going to come deliver, who's going to come save. Now, interestingly, when you go to the New Testament, it's made very clear that this is Jesus, and we see this particularly in Matthew chapter 3 at his baptism. In Matthew chapter 3, it says, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So here's the scene. Isaiah promised that a Messiah servant was coming to deliver. Okay, then when Jesus is initiating his ministry and he's being baptized, the Spirit comes down in accordance with this text, but then the voice from heaven speaks. Now, when God speaks, he speaks scripture to us. Not surprisingly, he quotes Psalm 2-7. This is my son whom I love. That is a prophecy of the Messiah King, the glorious king that we were talking about in the first half of Isaiah. But then he quotes 42-1, the passage we're studying, in whom I love. And so God is putting forth this servant, extraordinary nature, because he is the Messiah King, but he's also the Messiah servant. It's infinite glory, but infinite condescension. You have in this servant this eternal paradox of massive glory, God himself, and yet he's coming as a servant. 
when Jonathan Edwards wanted to deal with this paradoxical nature of Christ, he preached on Revelation and in a sermon called The Excellencies of Christ. Here's what he wrote about this infinite glory and the infinite condescension. He said this. He says, There do meet in Jesus infinite highness and infinite condescension. Christ, as he is God, is infinitely great and high above all. He is higher than the kings of the earth, for he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is higher than the heavens and higher than the brightest and highest angels of heaven. So great is he that all men, all kings, all princes are as worms of the dust before him. All nations are as the drop of the bucket and the light dust on the balance. He's referencing, of course, Isaiah 40. Christ is the creator, the great possessor of heaven and earth. He is the sovereign Lord of all. He rules over the whole universe and does whatever so pleases him. His knowledge is without bound. His wisdom is perfect and what none can circumvent. His power is infinite and none can resist him. His riches are immense. And yet he is one of infinite condescension. None are so low or inferior. But Christ's condescension is sufficient to take a gracious notice of them. He condescends not only to the angels, humbling himself to behold the things that are done in heaven, but he also condescends to the such poor creatures as men, and that not only so as to take notice of princes and great men, but of those that are of the meanest rank and degree, such as are commonly despised by their fellow creatures, Christ does not despise. Such a conjunction of infinite highness and low condescension in the same person is, is admirable. It is. I, I think we can all agree with that. When you see someone of high renown do something of low, mean work, you are drawn to him. Are you not? I mean, are, are, you, not, are you not overwhelmed at his stepping down out of the station that he has? I see this time and time again. It, it was, and I referenced this a few years back about a mission teacher I had, a mission professor, Christy Wilson, a great professor, served in Afghanistan for 22 years. His parents served their lives in Afghanistan before. Godly man, well-known, high renown in the mission community. He's since died a number of years ago. But, but he was a man, and at seminary, there can kind of be a, a lofty attitude among professors and students, sadly. But he was one that would always grab the caretaker or the custodian or the maintenance guy or the guy in the yard. And I'd see him always talking to them. Or, or if I were talking to him, he would introduce me and explain to me what this man did and how important this man was. And I remember, out of all the seminary professors, he was the only one that I ever saw speak to the folks that had been hired just to keep the place up. But he made much of them. He would condescend. He was a very he was of high intelligence and a God-fearing man, and yet he would humble himself. I was drawn to him because of that. This is the extraordinary nature of this servant that we have in 42. It's an extraordinary nature, Jesus becoming a servant for us. I, I mean, the first response, I think, for the Christian is not to scrutinize Jesus. I, I think the religious man will scrutinize Jesus. The religious man may, may think about Jesus, attribute many things to him, good teacher, moralist, philanthropist, a healer, that sort of thing. But I think the Christian would just marvel at Jesus. Charles Spurgeon says, Christ alone is fit for contemplation. That, that, that we would marvel over such a one. 
that we wouldn't scrutinize him, we would just worship him. That's a mark of the Christian. When you marvel over the uniqueness of Christ, of high, of high highness, coming down in low condescension, that it just elicits a worship out of us, a marveling at him, a considering of him. And I would, I would add, in that, you will receive much grace. In fact, uh, John Owen, a, a great Puritan of the 16th century, says, he says this, if we are satisfied with vague ideas about him, we shall find no transforming power communicated to us. But when we cling wholeheartedly to him and our minds are filled with thoughts of him and we constantly delight ourselves in him, then spiritual power will flow from him to purify our hearts, increase our holiness, strengthen our graces, and sometimes fill us with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's what I'm asking you to do, to marvel at him. That's what the Christian does. But the Christian also mimics him. We mimic him. In other words, that, that same mixing of strength and weakness ought to be growing in every one of us. Now, some of you are naturally strong. You're bold. You're brash. You have an ability to get out of the gate quick. And, and that's a gift of God. That's great. But within you, there should be a growing gentleness, a tenderness in you. There ought to be a growing sensitivity to the weaknesses and the brokenness of others. That should be part of Christ forming you into himself. For those of you who are naturally a little demure or, or a little reserved, or perhaps you're just naturally compliant and, and you're naturally soft-spoken, there ought to be a growing strength of character of the gospel in you. That there ought to be a, a, a firming up of a spiritual fiber in your back over the nature of the gospel. I, I've watched this in, in my own, in Carol's life, naturally soft, compliant, non-aggressive. And yet the gospel has taken root into her where there's a firmness in a gospel boldness that I would say in the last five years has changed dramatically. But that's what ought to be. For us who marvel at him, we're going to begin to mimic him. This extraordinary nature, a growing weakness and strength within us that is going to be modeled after Christ. Do you see that in you? Ask someone. Ask your spouse. Ask your kids. If you're, if you're of bold character, ask them, do you see a growing tenderness in me? Do you see a softness? Or if you're, if you're naturally compliant and soft, ask. Do you see the gospel taking root in my soul? Do you see there a firmness in my life? Ask him. And then, and then if they say, no, I don't see it. I don't want you to move to dejection. I want you to move to Isaiah 40, the one who doesn't grow weary, who gives strength to the weak. We are weak. So just ask and then move with prayer and pray by faith. The second thing I think we see about this beautiful picture of a servant is the cosmic task. I mean, it's dizzying. It's dizzying to hear what he is called to do. This servant has been chosen by God, extraordinary nature. Now he's going to do this cosmic, dizzying task. What is it? What's to establish justice? You see it three times in four verses. At the end of verse 1, he's going to bring forth justice. At the end of verse 3, he's going to faithfully bring justice. In verse 4, he's not going to grow faint until he has established justice. Now, what does this mean? Well, there is the justice of of rectifying justice, as some philosophers call it, where an evildoer is caught and he's punished. And we say justice was done. In other words, he's a, 
He's committed a crime, and he's going to be punished for his crime, and so justice is served. That's what philosophers call a rectifying justice. I don't think that's what he's speaking here. It's broader than that. For him to establish justice, what he's doing is this servant is going to come and he's going to establish God's order on this earth. He's going to set things in right order as God designed them to be. He's going to bring a peace, and I mean a peace, a shalom, a rightly ordering of life. That's what Jesus Christ, that's what this servant, I would say, has come to do. Barry Webb, an Australian commentator, said it this way, the mission of the servant is a gigantic one. It is nothing less than to put God's plans for his people into full effect and to make the truth of God known everywhere that he is the sovereign Lord of history. That's what the servant has come to do. So when you see poverty, abuse, racism, greed, you see these things, you automatically just say, you don't say, wow, the world's gone to heck in a handbag. You just say, that's the disordering of God's universe. It's a disordering of the universe. Things are not ordered. No, we don't turn to legislation or greater education or new political party or, or throw more money at something. That's not going to deal with the issue. Those things may be helpful in, in a Romans 13 controlling type of way, controlling evil. The problem is greater than this. It, it, politics and money, we can't change the fundamental disorder. This is only what the servant can do. Only the servant can bring order. Remember back in Genesis 2, everything was in order. There was harmony between the man and the wife, with God, with creation. Everything was in harmony. Everything was in order. Genesis 3 comes along, and man wants to put his order above God's order. Man wants to assert his authority above God's authority. Man wants to change God's order. And, of course, that's the sin of Genesis 3, which has brought about a cosmic disordering. We see it, well, we see it in the physicality. Now we get old, we age, and we die. Just go to Genesis 5. Eight times you'll see it, and he died, and he died. That's very clear. But, but there's the relational disorder. The man and the woman in harmony. The man rejoicing over the woman in chapter 2. And now he's blaming the woman. And, and the woman's blaming others. And, and there's this relational disharmony, a disorder. There's a fear. There's a hiding. The nakedness that they shared without shame, now there's shame. But the social disorder. Now, you think your kids fight? Their kids fought to the death. Cain kills Abel. And then cities of ruin are established. So there's this massive disordering that this servant has come to put in order. And you see in 5 and 6 and 7 how he begins to do that. Look in 6 particularly. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. He's speaking to the servant. God's speaking to the servant. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. This servant is going to come And through the covenant that he will establish, as we're going to find at the table, in his blood, he's going to bring about an ordering of the universe back to God's design. He's going to reverse the degrading sins. Now, it shouldn't surprise you that there is no servant that you find in the Old Testament that begins to do this. But at the coming of Jesus, what do you find? You find this very thing. Jesus' miracles begin to what? They're reordering the universe. He's raising the dead. He's healing, the, he's healing the sick. He's cleansing the leper. He is reversing the degrading effects on sin. He's giving us a foretaste of it. And incidentally, in Matthew chapter 12, here's what 
Matthew writes about Jesus. He says, Jesus withdrew from there, and many followed him. Listen, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Do you see what's happening? Jesus is the servant of servants. He's bringing about the task, and he's giving us a foretaste. He's going to give us a glorious foretaste in his resurrection. The beginning, the first fruits of a reordered creation. This is what the servants come to do. This is why we're waiting for him. Now, as a church, how do we respond to this as a church? Do we just stand back and marvel? Yes, we do. But we also, as a church, begin to bring justice ourselves. Let me explain just a few ways that you can do this. Bringing justice for us as a church, Christ Covenant Church, means that it begins in our personal relationships in this church. That we walk with justice. In other words, we're bringing about a reordering of relationships. So when our relationships are fractured, we are the first to repent and reconcile. That we keep short accounts. So Paul says in Acts 24, 16, he says, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. In other words, what he is doing is he's looking at his life and he's saying, where have I walked in a way that is not worthy of the gospel that has created disorder in the relationships that I have? I'm going to go and I'm going to repent before God because every sin we commit is against God. And then I'm going to repent to the one that I've sinned against so as to bring order back into the relationship. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to Assess our relationships. Husbands, you assess your relationships with your wives and wives' husbands and parents to children and friends to friends and, and, and co-worshippers to co-worshippers. You assess your relationships. You know, the way I said that wasn't very kind. <clears throat> I can say things sometimes. I think I'm sounding nice. I'm told I don't always sound nice. So I've got to go back and say, you know what? I think I could have misspoke. I meant this. I think I probably said this. Please forgive me. And, and that is a reordering of relationships. We need to practice that here. A lot of times even relationships fall upon gender lines or ethnic lines or even class lines. A lot of the conflict we have. But you know the Christ, Paul writes in Galatians 3, 3.28, um, 3 he says, uh, there is neither Jew nor Greek. In other words, there's no ethnicities now. There's neither slave nor free. There's no more social class. There's neither male nor female. Now, he's not destroying the distinctives of these things. He's just saying you ought to be harmony because you're one in Christ. So that's the first thing we do. As a church, are you practicing quick reconciliation, bringing justice, bringing order to the relationships that are out of whack? But then secondly, I would say we have this responsibility to do the same thing in society, that we are called to bring justice to the social structures in which we live. Now, I am under no illusions to think that we, as the Christian, can transform society in some post-millennial understanding that we are going to be the agents of total change in society. Don't think we're going to correct every institutional wrong. Don't think we will. But I do believe that God's calling us to reflect Christ to others, to image God to the world. And Martin Luther says we're the mask of God. So in whatever environment you're in, 
you are bringing about order to that environment through your integrity, through your hard work, through your loving your neighbor, through your sacrificing for others. So it's not, just, it's not just caring for the unborn. It's not just caring for orphans. It's working right in the office. It's doing right in the community. That all these social structures that you find yourselves in, are you walking with integrity? Are you promoting yourself or are you promoting others? Are you repenting when you're wrong? I mean, this is how we bring order. This is how we bring justice. This is how we mimic Christ to the world. And then last, of course, we have a responsibility to the nations. You know, Jesus said he's gonna, it's going to establish justice to the nations. We have the same responsibility. There is only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. This servant alone can bring justice to the nations, but now he's chosen to send us to the world, as Matthew 28 says. So there is a clear responsibility we have to be senders and to be those being sent to the end of the world, that we are to establish justice to the nations, to the coastlands, or the word can also be translated islands, the furthest parts the name will go forth. The servant work will be done. So that's the second facet. It's a huge task to bring order to your life. Just for a minute with me, would you think where is there disorder that you as a Christian can bring order? And what will it look like? I would ask that even though you may be the offended party, that you would be the initiator of the reconciliation. As we're going to find, it's the one who is bruised who helps those who are bruised. So don't wait. You may be right. You may be right in whatever disorder there is. But wouldn't it be a display of the gospel that the one hurt is the one seeking reconciliation for the one who brought the hurt? That would be a picture of the servant. Okay, the third facet we see in this glorious servant is his manner. It's counterintuitive. It's totally unconventional. Look with me at what he does in verse 2. He says, he will, <clears throat> he will not cry aloud. He will not lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. Now, you do not see many CEOs this way, bringing about a big colossal task like justice to the nations. I mean, in our environment, in our world, boldness is big. Go big or go home is what we're told. It, the brashness, the boldness, I mean, that's what it is. I mean, to be a supercharging, heavy-handed, strong leader, that's what we want. We want to follow those. But it says here that <clears throat> he won't lift up his voice. The word to cry aloud means to drown out the other. You know, in many of the political debates we have, I, I always, I'm always wondering if they're as embarrassed as I'm embarrassed for them when they just talk over each other. You know, they, they think if I go louder, and many of our arguments are done this way, if I just go louder and if I go bolder, then I'm going to win the argument. Well, this servant doesn't do that. He doesn't raise his voice. He speaks with persuasion. He speaks with truth. He speaks with intentionality. He doesn't have to scream to get his way. He doesn't have to yell to get people to listen to him. I mean, it's radically unique how he does this. I mean, you look at the world's leaders. It, it, this is like diametrically opposed to what we think is right. And then look at the manner. In verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. You know, um, let me start with the wick. We don't have candles as such anymore. You know, the wick sitting in a little bit of oil and 
when the oil goes down and the wick gets to the bottom, it's very, very precarious. You can walk right by it, and the wind that comes behind that, that backdraft you know, can just snuff the candle right out. You have to really be gentle as you walk by a, a fading flame on a, on a smoldering wick. And this servant will be so sensitive as to know that and respond accordingly to it. Or the bruised reed. The bruised reed is just a, a, a shaft that's been cracked. And, and it can't bear the weight of anything anymore. It's really useless. But, but, but this servant will be gentle with that cracked. In, in fact, the word bruise actually can also be translated crushed. You know, and, and the idea of crushed is that, is that crushing of a body, let's say, where there's not a lot of external evidence, but the internal organs have been mangled by the crush. So you don't see it, but they're dying inside. And so this servant is going to be so gentle. He doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't cry aloud. He doesn't have to out-shout you. But he's going to move with such sensitivity to those who are broken and those who are hurting. The, the smoldering wick and the bruised reed is us. It's people that are oppressed, that are burdened by sin, that are overwhelmed by the, by the negative consequences of, of their own choices or the choices of others that have come upon them. He's so gentle and he's so kind that he won't break that reed. That, that he, he knows that even though you may look fine on the outside, he knows that you may be crushed on the inside. So gentle and so kind is he. These are the objects of the servant's ministry. The servant will minister to these. He doesn't run from these. He doesn't find these messy. He doesn't find these troubling. He doesn't find these too time-consuming. I'm going to move on to the cleaner version of ministry. These are the objects of his ministry. He's gentle. He's kind, isn't he? He's soft, wouldn't you say? But don't think for a minute that he's not successful. If you look in verse 4, he says, He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth. Even the coastlands are waiting for his law. In other words, he's not going to grow faint or weary. Now, what does that mean? Those are actually the same two Hebrew words as smoldering wick and, uh, and bruised right above. And what it's saying here is that he will be bruised in ministering to the bruised. That he will be like a smoldering wick. He will embrace the suffering and the pain that we are going through and yet minister to us successfully. Even though he will suffer hardship and difficulty, he will not fail. He will not fail. Even the islands wait for him. The islands, the farthest points, he will reach them. The servant will take the message to them all the way to the coastlands. That even though he's gentle, doesn't mean he's ineffective. Even though he's soft, it doesn't mean that he's not going to be successful. He will be successful to the coastlands. Why? Well, look with me in verse 5. God says, I am the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to all people. God is going to make sure that the servant that he has chosen will be successful. God is going to make sure that the servant and his work is going to be done to the uttermost. When you look at this as a church, how ought we to look at this? Well, this ought to revolutionize our ministry. It ought to revolutionize the way we look at ministry, the objects of ministry, and even warnings of ministry. I mean, when I look at this, I, I stand absolutely convicted. 
oftentimes failing to see that the soft and the gentle and the kind without bending on truth. You know, that, that's the problem when you come from a, when we are a people who hold highly theological truth from the pulpit and from all the teaching platforms, people that are strong in theological truth can have really sharp corners. And when they turn, they can really hurt those around them. And, and we can lose this, this side of the ministry of, of this servant, Jesus, uh, because we're upholding truth. We never want truth to be held in such a manner that there can't be gentleness and kindness and softness and grace. Uh, picking up this as a ministry, this counterintuitive ministry, also steers us away from, from the fads of ministry. I mean, I look at some of the styles of church, and I'm just thinking, how long will that style last? How long will that dress last? That you've you, you got to dress like this. Well, what happens in 15 years? He's not going to look so good in that outfit anymore. He's going to need to change again. And, and we as a church can be so tempted by the fads and the styles. What will it take to attract people? And Jesus seems to just be counterintuitive to everything we think to be right and good. So, so I mean, it, it does adjust our understandings of ministry. I think of the incremental nature of ministry, how often we want it fixed now. And even in ministry, even speaking for myself, the difficulty of laboring with people over the years. I, I told someone the other day, I never knew this, of course, I wouldn't have. Nobody had told me. But, but sometimes ministry can be challenging, more challenging, as you go on with it a while. Because the incremental nature really begins to build up. Things don't happen as fast as you would want them. You say, well, I thought two or three or four years might be good. But you know, some, peop- some change in our lives, in my life, takes even longer. Will we be gentle? Will we be, will we be so kind to that bruised reed that we won't break it in our fatigue and our frustration? But not just does it affect the way we look at ministry, but clearly the objects of ministry, these are the weak. I mean, folks, you and I are these smoldering wicks. I mean, you and I are these, are these bruised reeds. I mean, these are the objects of the ministry of the Messiah, that Jesus has come to save these. We want to distance ourselves from these. We want to think we've got it all together. I don't know where the lie crept into the church or when this lie crept in that somehow you have to have it all together before you come to Christ. I don't know where that came from. But I want to tell you right now, it's out of the pit of hell. The only thing you bring to Christ is your sin. And you know what? Praise God. He welcomes sinners. Those who come to him, the bruised reeds and the, and the smoldering wicks, that's, that's who comes. You know, it's amazing when Jesus... In, in his ministry, he says that tax collectors and prostitutes are getting ahead into the kingdom, ahead of you, the Pharisees, the religious. I mean, it's a warning for us religious people. I mean, the objects of our ministry are the bruised reeds. And sometimes I think we shy away from them because of the demand that it's going to put on our schedule. Or I may not have the answers or it's too much time or it's too difficult. You don't know the weight of their problems. I could never handle them. He's not asking you to handle the problems. He's just asking you to preach the gospel, to display a love for people. The objects of the ministry that we, the people that we ought to have in our lives are these bruised reeds. I mean, he says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I'll give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm humble and I'm gentle of heart. And I'll give you rest for your souls. Those people that have troubled souls. He's such a gentle servant. But here's the warning to us. Here's the warning that comes from this ministry. There's two dangers. By the way, your sin is not a danger to come to, come to Jesus. Your sin is not a danger. Sadly, sin keeps people away from Jesus. Sin ought to drive you to him. So if you feel like a sinner that can't be forgiven and you feel like you've just done it, you've blown it too many times and you've gone too far, you're, you're in great shape. Just run to him. Just look to him. Don't doubt. Just run to him. He will forgive you with mercy. You see the gentleness of the servant. Here's the warning for us. I see two things. One is ambivalence. When you read a text like this, if we walk away ambivalent, I want you to know that's a warning signal for your soul. A little flag ought to go up in your mind. It ought to warn you, do I understand what it means to be saved? Do I understand Jesus Christ? Do I understand the ministry that Jesus came to bring? If there's an ambivalence, if there's kind of a casual, well, that's nice, and you're not overwhelmed, and I don't mean you've got to cry, I just mean you're struck with this unique nature and the cosmic task and the, and the radical ministry, the ambivalence should not be on your heart, nor should there be a sense of arrogance that I don't need this anymore. I was the bruised reed, now I'm all fixed up. Folks, we're all going into it as bruised reeds. The, the, everybody, the, the day you step over into life and you see him face to face, still going to be a bruised reed. We're still going to need the gospel every day. That we want to fight the arrogance. Your theology may be growing and you may be seeing fruit in your life from God's grace moving through you, and all of that's great, and I rejoice with that. But don't let that move you away from the fact that you need the service of this servant. You need the service of this gospel, reminding you over and over again how desperate we are in need of his service. And folks, will need him forever. He'll forever be the son. He'll forever mediate. He'll forever intercede for us. So this is, just a, this is a beautiful portrait of the servant. I, I want you to marvel and mimic this extraordinary character. High, high glory, and, and yet low condescension. I want you to marvel over his task. Bringing justice, he is going to... Please don't fall into this gospel reductionism where we boil the gospel down to just he saved me from my sins. Yes, he did rejoice on that. But let it be expansive that he's bringing about a whole new order of creation. Jesus Christ still, through the power of the gospel, is still bringing order change, and it will, it will keep being done until that day he returns. And then there'll be a full reordering of creation back to God's perfect design. And then look with me at the facet of his ministry, this counterintuitive, radical ministry, this gentleness. So marvel with me. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to, uh, prepare our hearts for the table, and then I'll call the service forward. Father, thank you for this word that you've given to us to declare to us the beauty of the servant. Father, our hearts, I know, are distracted right now. They're, they're with family. Perhaps there's struggles and trials in our homes. Or perhaps there's just much joy, and we're excited about the season and the presence and the, and the cheer that we're going to have with family and friends, Lord. I, I pray that you would just gently, as you are so gentle, that, Jesus, you would serve us by bringing our minds back to this text, that we would marvel over you and we would mimic you. We would mimic you. We would mimic you even today as we go to move by faith, hearing the word and doing the word 
by bringing about order in our relationships and, and kind of recasting our understanding of ministry from this, from this beautiful picture. Father, I pray that you would do this for the glory of your name and for our joy. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. L- let me just, um, while, while you're preparing for the table, let me give you a thought um, in light of this text here. In, um, in Isaiah, I didn't speak much to Isaiah 6 that I have given you as a covenant for the people. Uh, next week I'll be speaking on Isaiah 53, and so we'll be covering that in, in, in great detail. But let me just remind you of the table that, that Isaiah had prophesied, God had said to Jesus, the servant, I will make you a covenant. And then, of course, it was Jesus in Matthew 26 when he said, and Jesus took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink of it. All of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. So Jesus has made Christ to be, in this, in this particular uh, scripture, Jesus is the covenant. He hasn't just made a covenant in his blood, but it's, he is the covenant. In other words, that, that, that he has borne that the covenant that we couldn't keep, we could not live according to the righteous demands of the law, Jesus lived as our covenant. He lived that way and satisfied all the demands of God so that now when God would look at those of us who are under the covenant, he would look at us as he looks at Christ as if we've kept all the law. So we have a perfect righteousness that is ours now because of Christ. And yet for the things that we didn't keep of the covenant and we didn't walk according to the covenant and and the wrath and the righteous indignation of God that should have fallen on us because we broke the covenant, fell upon Jesus and his blood was shed. And so God brought down his full vented fury and Christ absorbs all of his divine wrath. That's why he had to be the God-man because only God could absorb the wrath of God and he did that for us. So that now we who by faith have come to Jesus Christ are now sealed in this covenant of blood. So when you take the bread that has been broken for you, his body, and you, and you plunge it into the red, and then you put it in your mouth, you are, you are declaring that I am saved by the covenant, which is Christ. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 2, he himself is our peace. He didn't just bring peace, he is peace. And the only peace that we have with God is in Christ. And, and the only adoption of sons and daughters that we have with God is because of this table. So let's take a, a few minutes now as the servers come forward. Let's take a few minutes and just quietly reflect on this. And, and on the fact that, yes, you have sinned, even today, yesterday, last week. And I would ask you to, uh, to just take a moment and consider these things and then repent before him and then... Um, Then I'll pray and then the service will break the word.